I'm Tim Gombas, and this is Faith Improvised. It's a podcast where I can think out loud and talk with friends about things that interest me. Books, films, sports, music, culture, politics, the wonders and complexities of being Christian in this world, and my academic discipline, biblical studies. You're welcome to email me if you like at faithimprovised at gmail.com. In this episode, I recommend a brilliant book that examines American myths, and I talk about why it's so important to understand the different kinds of literature found in the Bible. So I'm back in town after about a 10-day uh, road trip. I drove from Grand Rapids, Michigan to Phoenix, Arizona over a couple of days. Spent four or five days with my daughter Maddie hanging out, which was just the best. She's one of the best humans on the face of the earth. And um, eating good food, taking hikes in the desert, and uh, took in a Cubs game last, what's today? Yeah, a week ago Sunday. Went to see the Cubs play the Angels. I got to learn this roster. I don't even know who any of these players are. Um, this is a brand new version of the Chicago Cubs. Look, they look nothing like they did even two years ago. But, um, you know, it's a fresh start and they looked good and they've had a good spring, uh, which obviously means nothing for the regular season. But it was really, it's great to take in some baseball, to sit there with, um, in the sunshine with a big old bag of peanuts and, not having to wear like a winter coat or anything like that. Anyway, I had a blast. And of course I come back to, um, you know, about an eight inch snowfall the day after I returned and, uh, woke up this morning, got another six inches on the ground. I'm just tired of this. I'm ready for spring and I'm ready for summer. Usually at this time of year, I get really anxious uh, for the cold to give way to the spring. And so I always plan a trip out West at this time of year. And I'm glad I've, I've taken several trips out West. Got a few more coming, which would be kind of cool. Um, I love road trips too. I love time alone in the car. I love um, just being untethered from all the things that sort of clamor for our attention and, um, and all of that. I took, I took like all social media, tons of stuff off my phone. And it's just so great to be on the open road. I listened to the audio version of Bono's book, Surrender, uh, over about a 10-day period. That was fantastic. Caught up on a bunch of podcasts, it listened to music, and just generally enjoyed um, the beautiful scenery of this great land. It's incredible. It's incredible. Uh, one thing that always strikes me uh, when I take road trips is just how much space there is, how, how huge this place is. And I cannot help but think about um, why just anti-immigrant, anti-immigration sentiment makes no sense if you just take a road trip. There is just so much space and there's so much more here um, than we realize. I don't know. Uh, also got um, sharpened up my opinions a little bit on different state drivers on interstates. Um, Missouri drivers, not fantastic, frankly. Um, Oklahoma, not bad. Texas, decent. New Mexico, um, for the most part, okay. <clears throat> and again, I drive, I, I judge a state's drivers by how, uh, they do or do not respect the left lane. And I have to say 
there are there are a bunch of states where people just linger in the left lane as if it's no big deal when the left lane is sacred there are signs many states like new mexico has signs slower traffic keep right keep right except to pass and some doofus will just be like lingering in the left lane which to me is um that's that's a serious serious violation again uh my respect for Michigan drivers and the Michigan driver education programs in general, or the varieties of them has grown because Michigan drivers, you, you see someone coming up behind you, you just get over. They must emphasize checking. Uh, I didn't take drivers out here in Michigan, but they must emphasize regularly checking your rear view mirror. Cause I don't know that um, uh, cars produced in Texas or shipped to Texas uh, or apparently Missouri, have rear view mirrors. Anyway, my imperious judgment of a variety of states drivers continues unabated. Um, I'm taking another trip, a couple of road trips coming up. I'm going out to uh, see some friends in Ohio and then uh, down to Virginia. Yeah, this is just a season of a lot of travel for me, which is just tons of fun. I, <clears throat> Maddie and I ate a lot of good food in Phoenix, which is, that's always any visit with my kids is always going to revolve around good meals and hiking. Uh, we went to one of my favorite places in Phoenix is taco guild, which is just the coolest taco place. It's in an old Methodist church and, uh, the food, the appetizers food are all fantastic. Uh, uh great margarita. And just the setting is just the coolest. Uh, Maddie and I also went to Revolu, like revolution without the T-I-O-N. Um, awesome appetizer, great street tacos. I had street tacos pretty much every meal. And stopped in Albuquerque on the way to Phoenix and stopped in Albuquerque on the way back and uh, visited La Reforma, which is a brewery, taqueria, and distillery on one. And uh, had a couple of excellent beers. and very good street tacos, La Reforma in Albuquerque. But the um, the high point of my gastronomic pleasures on this trip was on the way back, I um, woke up and I just, I did another search for the best breakfast burrito in Albuquerque. Because the one that I had on the way out was less than stellar. I stopped at the Grove, which apparently is supposed to be in you know the top several breakfast burritos in Albuquerque. And I was like, okay, this is going to be great. Um, it's a cool place. Uh, the, the breakfast burrito arrived at my table, and visually, I was like, wow, this is this looks beautiful. You know, the the colors just sort of popped, and um, but eating it was just. I don't know. It was kind of like a B, a B plus maybe. I would have given it like an 8.83 out of 10. Yeah, less than less than thrilled. So on the way back, on the way back home, stopped through Albuquerque, did another, you know, online search for breakfast burritos. But this time I looked, oh, I came across, uh, it was an article in, in the, from the LA Times. Best breakfast burritos in the state. <clears throat> and... um uh, this was a survey of of uh, people from New Mexico, 
And uh, there were two places that I isolated that I wanted to check out. Um, one place was in Santa Fe, uh, which I could have taken that route. Or one place which was on I-40 going through Edgewood, I could have taken that route. Both of these routes were available to me that would have taken the same amount of time to get where I was going. Um, I chose... Katrina's East Mountain Grill, because that apparently got the most votes uh, out of all the voters that took this survey in the state. And Edgewood is is a town about 25 miles east of Albuquerque, highly unremarkable, nothing big about it. Um, and this place is just a very unremarkable place. I stopped, I was like, Man, this breakfast burrito has got to be, it better be, better be worth my you know, taking this route because the other place in Santa Fe apparently is like the first place that ever made a breakfast burrito, which would have been something. Anyway, I just got to say, this is one of the most glorious creations I have ever enjoyed. I, 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 there was, I transcended, I elevated, it opened up a whole new world to me. I just, this, this, I now have a top five. And I would put Katrina's East Mountain Grill breakfast burrito. Um, seriously, it's like top two. It was that good. I don't know. Usually before I make a judgment like that, I want to take several passes. Uh, I, I have no idea when the next time is going to be. When I will be uh, through Albuquerque or Edgewood near Albuquerque. Um, but I can say for sure it will involve a stop at the East Mountain Grill. So I've had a number of conversations recently in a variety of venues uh, about evangelism. I, I've talked on this podcast before about um, how I don't, I don't think that evangelism is the task of the church, but in the New Testament, the church is what evangelism produces. And once there are churches in an area, evangelism is done, and then churches get about uh, the, you know, the project of learning how to embody the life of the kingdom of God in that location. And um, I pointed out before that in no New Testament letter that is uh, directed to a church, uh, does any letter writer ever instruct a church to undertake uh, an evangelism campaign or anything like that, or never says to do evangelism or share the gospel or preach the gospel. Um, and, in a couple of discussions, I've um, people have responded to me by bringing up Matthew 28, and they will say, well, what about the Great Commission, <clears throat> where Jesus says uh, to his disciples that are gathered there, uh, go, or it's a participle, as you're going, or when you're going, or um, it could even be an, ex it could come in the form of an exhortation or command. I, I highly doubt it. That's not how participles work in Greek, but uh, Jesus says, as you're going, fellas, make disciples, teaching them or baptizing them. So uh, getting people in uh, to a kingdom of God community, baptizing them and teaching them to observe everything I have commanded. And I think that for, uh, for many evangelical people or in the evangelical imagination, the way that we think about uh, that is that 
Jesus is giving to the church its basic marching orders. That's like the big project that we're supposed to be about, making disciples. And certainly when we think about making disciples, that's got to begin with some kind of evangelistic effort. Like people have to hear about what the gospel is. And once we get them in, uh, we get them involved in a discipleship process. And in a discipleship process, um, you know, churches might do this a little bit differently, uh, but it involves teaching. And um, this involves teaching new initiates into the faith uh, theology or how to read your Bible or how to uh, understand Christian identity or, you know, whatever, that that's the teaching, sort of how to have a devotional life and all of that sort of thing largely information and sort of personal practices. Um, and so anyway, that's sort of the conception of things. And I, I, I've just been puzzling over that a bit more uh, because I think that there's, there are better ways of thinking about that whole thing. And um, what I, what I find interesting is um, first of all, I did an episode way at the beginning of when I began doing this podcast sometime in the fall, late summer of 2021, I think, or 2020, I can't remember, 2020, about the Great Commission, talking to my friend Kristen Johnson, who's done some research on the history of that phrase. And it's very recent. Um, really, the, the end of the 19th and the beginning of the 20th centuries uh, is when in Christian history, that phrase began to be used. And it was put to use to talk about that uh, that passage in, in Matthew 28 <clears throat> and evangelistic efforts. Um, what I, what I find is also striking is that thinking about evangelism as a task of the church is also very recent. It's a distinctly American sort of phenomenon. It's spread to the rest of the world, uh, but it's a very, very recent, uh, sort of innovation in the history of the Christian church. And I think that there's a lot historically uh, to talk about there and to explore, but I'll just say that this is very recent. Um, and oh, where's I going with that? Well, those are just some sort of starting points. Um, and what is interesting, what is striking to me is that it is among American evangelicals where the impulse and the desire and sort of the felt burden uh, of evangelizing is most prominent. Those are the folks that see evangelism as a high priority, evangelical Christians. And um, in thinking about that passage in Matthew 28, I just was thinking more about how, like what, this is sort of how things go with my thought process. I just want to know, like, let's take a closer look at that and examine some of the contours of that passage and really try to discern what's Matthew doing there and what is Jesus talking about in Matthew. And um, just to say, what he is telling the disciples is as they're going from that place on the mountain, they are to make disciples. And disciples, uh, the Greek term there is learners, people who learn, learners. and Jesus says, uh, baptizing them. So bringing people in, uh, into the church, into these kingdom of God communities and teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded you. And what struck me is that 
Jesus is telling the, the disciples not to teach um, learners cognitive content. They're not learning anything intellectual. They're not learning concepts. Um, the disciples are to, to teach disciples to observe, to do. It's, it's like um, make apprentices in this way of life. Make apprentices in this way of life. That's, that is the thrust of what Jesus is saying to the disciples. And so it seems to me that if we think sort of appropriating that contemporarily, um, <clears throat> geez, sorry, the church's task is to train the people in the church in this way of life, in these practices, in the practices and, and the way of life that Jesus talks about in Matthew, if we just stay in Matthew for the moment because I try to interpret um, statements in discrete texts like Matthew by all the other things that are in Matthew before jumping all over the place to other passages. Because in Matthew, Jesus has a lot to say about the way of life to which he is calling disciples. The whole Sermon on the Mount is about um, how kingdom of God communities get along with each other, the practices that are required for communities to function well together. You've got to learn to forgive. You've got to learn to share your stuff. This is how you function fruitfully. Um, learn the practices of, of, of poverty, um, of not having a ton and not having excess. But I was thinking about that reality that Jesus is telling the disciples to make apprentices who learn the practices. So it's, it's not cognitive. It's concrete. It's actual. It's communal. And I just was thinking through a range of passages in Matthew, and just my mind kind of settled in on Matthew 25, uh, which is a really frightening text. If you're someone like me in my social location, but Jesus uh, talks about the, sh the sheep and the goats. There's going to be uh, two groups of people that sort of arrive at the judgment. And there will be one group of people uh, that did do certain things, and one group of people who did not do certain things. But all of them knew about Jesus. They all sort of, you know, are aware of Jesus and know him. Even uh, it seems like they, maybe they're all people that identify as people connected to Jesus. And what he talks about there is a group of people who, um, there, there's one group of people who served Jesus himself, and one group of people that did not serve Jesus. Jesus himself. And the group of people that did is the group of people that uh, clothed the naked, fed the hungry, um, visited prisoners, welcomed foreigners. The term is uh, stranger, um, but what's in view there is foreigners. That's what a stranger is in the first century world. And that's the term. Um, Philoxenia. Xenia, uh, which is related to the term, the opposite, xenophobia. That's that's a term that we use now, fear of the stranger. Philoxenia is the Greek word for love of the stranger. So Jesus is talking about uh, welcoming foreigners, immigrants, welcoming them. These are the practices that Jesus says, when you were doing these things to those people, the least you were doing them to me. And then to the other group, when you were not doing these things for the least and to the least, you were not doing them to me. 
So I was thinking about juxtaposing Matthew 25 and Matthew 28 and thinking about that exhortation, teaching them to observe, training them, training these learners uh, in these practices, because these practices do require training. I was thinking about this. I was like, um, I mean, I take walks each morning and I often run into um, homeless people that are sort of uh, wandering around. Um, I've done some work with homeless families. Um, and in the past, uh, COVID sort of scrambled everything. But for a while, I was I was volunteer teaching in the local, uh, local county jail. And I mean, my experience as uh, an upper middle class white man in America uh, is one in which I'm trained in certain social settings and certain social practices. And I didn't realize um, how how much training it requires to be in other social settings, like to go into the county jail and uh, <clears throat> to be left in a room with 60 um, inmates is is just really interesting. It requires training. Um, these practices just require training and, and, um, to learn, to love them and to learn to do these things, to learn to love the practices and to learn to see these practices as actually life-giving. Um, so in thinking about Matthew 25 and those practices, and in thinking about what Jesus says to the disciples, I was like, um, what that would mean if the church was teaching disciples and training disciples to observe those kinds of things, if we just think about uh, feeding the hungry and clothing the naked, that would mean that churches are these communities that study the dynamics of homelessness in their local area. Like uh, I live in the city of Grand Rapids. Um, I would be part of a community, ideally, if we were doing these things, um, that would study the causes of homelessness in Grand Rapids, that study the statistics of homelessness in Grand Rapids. Uh, what are, how does uh, the rising cost of housing contribute to homelessness? Um, how does mental health contribute to, uh, to homelessness? Uh, how does generational poverty contribute to homelessness? And um, what are state agencies doing about homelessness? What, what are they doing that is helping? Where does, where's more help needed? What are they, what are they doing or where are agencies sort of working at cross purposes with one another that keep people trapped in homelessness and in poverty? And then uh, what are, what are best practices nationwide and worldwide for churches to get involved in um, alleviating homelessness so that we can actually put some of those things into practice in our city? Like if, if my church was responding um, to Matthew 28, teaching them to observe, that is one of the things that we would be doing. Um, if it's the case that Jesus is, uh, if we are people being trained to observe uh, welcoming foreigners, our churches um, would, would be studying all of the, all of the dynamics of immigration. Um, what, what's the history of immigration patterns in the United States? Uh, why are people wanting to emigrate to the United States? What are the challenges um, of coming to a new country and trying to integrate into um, local communities where, where families can feel that they're safe? Um, in my local city, in our local city, what are 
the statistics of about immigration. Um, how can what are the challenges that immigrants face in Grand Rapids? Um, what are the various communities facing here in Grand Rapids who are um, who have immigrated legally or illegally? How can our church be involved in offering classes on teach on, on English as a second language? Um, how can we offer classes on becoming U.S. citizens or in sort of just again looking around at the country at best practices in like coming up with maybe like eight week courses on like here's how to function week in and week out in Grand Rapids, like here's where the stores are, here's where this is, and if you need uh, someone to sort of, if you need a community that just can be, can offer itself to you as your people, the people that will be there for you, we're that. Um, and then thinking even about uh, where Jesus talks about visiting prisoners. So training people to visit prisoners. So churches can be places that research uh, the prison system. What's the difference between a county jail and a federal prison or a state prison? Um, what are recidivism rates? How hard is it for felons to reintegrate into communities when they've been released? Um, what are the causes of recidivism? How can we as a community be of aid? How can we sort of um, get to know released felons, um, people who have served time and are wanting to reintegrate into uh, a local culture? How can we be a part of aiding that and um, researching jobs where they can find work and, and um, housing? This, these are the kinds of things that churches would be involved in if we responded to what Jesus had to say, where we are people that are training and being trained in doing the kinds of things that Jesus said to do. And what as I was thinking about this, what I found to be ironic and tragic and comical and just ridiculous is that as I look at the culture that I grew up in, white conservative evangelicalism, that is most passionate and talks most regularly about evangelizing, <clears throat> wanting to respond to the quote unquote Great Commission which I don't use that term, but wanting to respond to that by evangelizing. Um, what I find ironic is that that culture, and, and uh, studies have shown this, I think um, from the PRRI, uh, what's the book that, oh, I, I can't remember right now, Johnson. No, Robert Jones wrote that book, and it's, it's a collection, it's, it's narrative, but it's also a number of studies that show this. But white evangelicals, that's what evangelicalism is the demographic in the United States that is most, um, that has the most anti-immigrant attitudes. Even though Jesus said, train yourselves, you, you, you should be training and training yourselves in um, welcoming foreigners. Just interesting that white Christians in America are the most anti-immigrant. So it's like, not only have they failed to be trained and are failing to train themselves in this, um, that group of people is the one group that is most resistant in America to what Jesus has said to do. So the group most passionate about evangelizing is the group most passionate about not doing what Jesus said to do.
Um, and I have yet to be in an evangelical church that had, I'm part of a network of churches. Our church is part of a network of churches. And um, I helped to head up these efforts at our church. We're part of a network of churches in our town that helps intact homeless families get into sustainable housing. And those churches are almost entirely um, mainline churches. There's a couple of like universalist churches, which is really interesting. Um, but there are no evangelical churches. There's a couple of Christian Reformed churches, but sort of mainline or uh, mainstream evangelical churches are completely uninterested, which blows my mind thinking about um, alleviating the problems of homelessness in the city. So all of that to say, um, I think it's the case that what what is going on, or I, I guess I would say it this way, um, in the tradition that I came from, and certainly this is the case by and large for Christianity in America, especially among white Christians, it is the case that Christianity in America, in the, in the Christian church in America, has, has really failed to become people who learn to observe the things that Jesus said to do. And since the since we're a failure on that score, and we've just not taken up these practices, it just seems to me to be pointless to try to get more people to sign up to a program where we don't do what Jesus said to do. Anyway, that's how I think about in response to questions, you know, what about Matthew 28? I just think our work lies elsewhere, not in telling more people uh, that they should join this thing, because Jesus does talk about joining it. The disciples are to baptize people and then train them to do these things. <clears throat> and I think evangelicals have caught the, get people to sign up to this thing. Um, but many of us ourselves have never um, been trained or not interested in being trained into doing these kinds of things that Jesus says to do. Um, and that's where our work lies. I guess I'll just leave it there. Anyway, some thoughts about being Christian rather than uh, getting other people to sign up to it. I want to tell you about a book. It's called Myth America, Historians Take on the Biggest Legends and Lies About Our Past. It's edited by Kevin M. Cruz and Julian E. Zelizer, and it's published by Basic Books. I love reading history ancient, modern, European, American, and I very much appreciate historians because I crave an ever truer and sharper understanding of the present. How did we get here? Why are things the way they are? I just so desperately want to know. I want to understand the dynamics of my present reality and to see situations for what they truly are. As a biblical scholar, I've come to see that so much of my inherited understanding of Christianity is a distortion of what is actually in the New Testament to say nothing of the Old Testament. When I hear a thought articulated about God or Christian realities, I take that thought and try to pull it apart from various angles of approach to see if it holds up, whether it resonates with or deviates from the logic of biblical texts. There are just so many mistaken assumptions floating around in Christian culture, and I'm convinced that there are always more accurate, hopeful, life-giving, and liberating ways of thinking about God and about being Christian. The way to get there is through relentless critical engagement with biblical thought forms and by constant reassessment of our own theological assumptions. In very much the same way, 
I've come to see that I inherited a distorted understanding of so much of American history. I hate being captive to myths and corrupted ways of thinking because I want to understand the present to see American realities for what they truly are. This is especially the case since I'm someone who's interested in loving my neighbor in the same way that I love myself. In that project of understanding this American present for what it truly is, I'm dependent on the work of critically engaged historians. And this book, Myth America, brings together some of my favorite historians, along with some others whom I had not previously known. The book consists of 20 mostly short chapters in which historians subject American myths to historical scrutiny. They provide historical context to various ideas, prejudices, and patterns of thought. In an illuminating chapter on the notion of American exceptionalism, David Bell notes that this expression was first used by communists in the early to mid-20th century to inquire why no robust communist party took root in America. This was seen by communists as an exception to the normal course of historical development. I had no idea. It was later picked up by conservative thinkers to advance the idea of American greatness, the notion that America had some sort of unique role to play in the world. It became a test of patriotism for politicians, a question put to would-be office holders, whether they believe that America is the last best hope of earth, as Lincoln put it, or Reagan's shining city on a hill. Eric Kelman provides a fascinating chapter on the notion of the vanishing Indians, surveying the manner in which modern America has blocked from historical and current view the nations and tribes that inhabited this land before white Europeans arrived. He points to former Senator Rick Santorum's statement that when Europeans arrived on these shores, they found only a blank slate. There was nothing here, he insisted. Kelman demonstrates that even sympathetic works on the plight of Native Americans throughout the 20th century inadvertently further the vanishing myth, the vanishing Indian myth, portraying Native peoples and cultures as dying off and disappearing. The reality is that though the United States has treated First Nations with horrific and shameful violence, displacing them and re repeatedly breaking promises and treaties, the varied cultures of original inhabitants of this land are complex and resilient. Historian Sarah Churchwell wrote an influential book on the history of the expression, America First, revived by the previous U.S. president. And here she summarizes her research in a fascinating chapter. It is not merely an expression of isolationism from the international scene or national self-interest. It has more to do with bigotry, exclusion, and violence, as evidenced by insurrectionists carrying America First flags as they stormed the nation's capital, threatening to kill lawmakers. The expression has been used since the mid-19th century to focalize prejudices against newly arrived immigrants and to foment conspiracies about them. Protestants used it to demonize immigrant Catholics. White Americans used it to stir up animus against Japanese and Chinese immigrants. And the Ku Klux Klan used it to stir up racial hatred against Black Americans. It's always been a divisive expression in support of a white Christian nation, eliminating all others as real Americans. There are many other brilliant chapters in this book addressing whether feminists have really stood against family values. They haven't. The actual nature and real causes of police violence, whether Roosevelt's New Deal and Johnson's Great Society were successes or failures, and realities behind accusations of voter fraud, and so much more. 
I very much enjoyed reading this book, and I highly recommend it for anyone who wants a clearer perspective on American history and the American president, the American present. The book is Myth America, Historians Take on the Biggest Legends and Lies About Our Past. It's edited by Kevin Cruz and Julian Zelizer, and it's published by Basic Books. Get it, as ever, from an independent bookstore. So in the season of this fine podcast, I've been talking about engaging with Christian scripture or studying the Bible or reading the Bible or engaging with the Bible, whatever. Um, I don't want to tie it down, focusing on technique or something like that to sort of get all the answers or to climb into God's head and get all the answers for life. Uh, and in doing so, I just, I never, I don't think I ever addressed this, uh, but I've had a conversation yesterday uh, with my friend Kevin about this and have uh, gotten a couple of emails about it. And that is just sort of thinking about the Bible as a human product and a divine product. Uh, Christians confess that the Bible is inspired by God, and uh, we also know that it is produced by humans. And um, I've noticed that some people struggle with that. That is, if the Bible, if we, if we look at the sort of gritty realities of the human production of these texts um, over time, and even the canonization, uh, Ben and I were going back and forth about uh, the canonization process. It's very similar that the canonization process of scripture, that is um, collecting these texts into sort of one book um, and, and reckoning with what text should be in and what text should be out was a very human process. Um, if we sort of take a full on recognition of that reality, that seems to, it just seems that the gritty realities of history sort of marginalize God. It, and I think we, many Christian people uh, fall into sort of a black and white binary. It's got to be one or the other. If it was that messy and that gritty of a process, <clears throat> excuse me, then certainly God could not have been behind it. That it's not a divine product. Because if it was a divine product, you know, you would have had just like uh, Caravaggio's painting, uh, the inspiration of St. Matthew, which is beautiful. I love Caravaggio. Uh, but he's sort of Matthew's got his, his head half cocked as he's he's got his pen to paper, and the angel is uh, you know, um sort of descending from above and whispering into his ear what he should be writing. If if this is def if this is you know really an inspired product, um then these people were sort of just like grabbed hold of by God and they wrote out word for word everything that God wanted them to say. And then they sort of came to and were like, what did it what was that? Um it's unfortunate that we have this binary and I think that that's a very unhelpful way of thinking. Uh, because the Bible is most certainly a human product. It was written by people, and so it should be understood in, in terms of the conventions of the time. Um, oh, um, John Walton and Brent Sandy have a great book on this. I think it's called, it's that whole Lost series that John Walton was doing. And this one is called The Lost World of Scripture, I think. I'm almost sure of it. I'm looking at it across my study there. It's the, the lost world of scripture. And it's brilliant. It's brilliant for, especially for evangelical people. It's very helpful 
because they go into showing how uh, many Old Testament texts um, were sort of cared for and nurtured along and, and sort of, um, uh, yeah, yeah, caretaken by, you know, community elders in Israel. And uh, they would have sort of updated things that were in the text and, you know, uh, made some changes and alterations so that it was more understandable to the generations that were receiving it. And if that sounds um, terrible, check out the book. Um, because what, what uh, Walton and Sandy have to say is that in the ancient world, sort of quote unquote the message the message of a text or the, or the message uh was was far more important than you know uh the exact written words and certainly for evangelicals who have like myself who sort of were raised in an inerrancy culture um where we emphasized exactitude and the facts that are in the bible and the facts in the world and all that kind of stuff sort of a scientific way of reading biblical texts that just sounds awful but in the ancient world um, what had authority was the people bearing the message and the people, uh, you know, elders, and they're called tradents, people who are in charge of tradition, people who are in charge of uh, overseeing and caretaking the biblical tradition. And they, they were seen as having authority. They were seen as having um, uh, you know, respect or whatever. That was, that was the bearer of authority. It was the person speaking and it was sort of a climb down or it was sort of second best to have text because once you have text, it's kind of locked in. Um, and when I'm talking about updating, I'm, I'm talking about uh, things that are sort of just seen right on the surface, like in the passage, um, I'm going to get it wrong, but in Genesis, when um, Abraham pursued, he pursued um, the captors of Lot pursued them all the way to Dan is what the text says, uh, the text of Genesis. And of course, Dan was not around when Abraham was alive, but a later editor or a later caretaker of that text had to update that. So it would actually communicate to the people of his generation. So anyway, um, when you look at the actual facts and the realities uh, of the biblical text, all of that can kind of freak you out a little bit. Um, but because it's a human product, we have to understand that, um, you know, Paul's personality comes across his way of processing things comes, comes across in his letters. That's how <clears throat> he expresses himself. And we have Matthew's writing style and Luke's writing style. And you have all kinds of, you know, human dimensions going on in the Psalms and in the Proverbs. Um, you know, Proverbs is a collection of wisdom sayings that is borrowed almost entirely from the wisdom tradition of Egypt. I mean, these are just sort of the realities that lie behind texts. And um, all of that is super important to understand, um, to reckon fully with, that, the, that these are human products. And that's important to reckon with because um, they have to be interpreted and grappled with um, according to the conventions of the kinds of literature that they are. And that's the main thing that I want to talk about in that in this episode. They have to be understood and reckoned with according to the kinds of literature that they are. Um, now, Christians also 
confess. Oh, let me say one thing along that line as well. Um, and again, some Christian people don't really know how to grapple with this. Um, because the because biblical texts are human products, they can be understood well by anybody that does the hard work of interpretation. A person does not have to be Christian to be able to understand Christian scripture or biblical texts. Um, I know that many people believe that something sort of miraculous has to happen to a person or some special illumination has to happen. And if a person is not uh, a confessing Christian uh, or doesn't have their eyes opened by the Holy Spirit, then they're not going to be able to understand biblical texts. That's just flat out wrong. And that's not what Paul's getting at in 1 Corinthians 2 when he talks about, you know, the sort of the, the things of the Spirit. The realities of the Spirit that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 2 um, has everything to do with weakness and uh, cruciformity and, um, <clears throat> excuse me, recognizing the Spirit-empowered ability to recognize that um, God is not present in spectacle or impressive displays of ministry, but he is present where there is cruciformity, where there's weakness, where there are postures of humility and invitation. <clears throat> That's a spiritually discerned reality, and the Corinthians are filled with arrogance and love of spectacle, uh, very much like uh, Romans folks, Roman folks, and very much like modern Americans, um, raised on, on entertainment as we are. Anyway, um, I know of many good excellent biblical scholars who are not confessing Christian people and uh, they do great work. And I think for, for myself anyway, I give, I'm, I'm really grateful um, for um, thinking of Elizabeth uh, Struthers Melbon is a, a Markin scholar and just one of the tops. I mean, she's just her, her handling of the text of Mark and of the narrative dimensions of Mark is awesome. And uh, she's not a confessing Christian. So in a sense, <clears throat> doesn't really have any like sort of skin in the game confessionally. Um, but she, she can handle the text of Mark better than most other folks that I know. Um, so the Bible is a biblical text are products of humans. Um, Christians also confess that biblical texts are uh, sort of divinely produced or that they are God's word. And that is a confession that Christians make. This is something that that Christian people believe by faith and by faith um, take it as a reality that these consulting with these texts and attending carefully to them is how the church sort of hears from God and uh, navigates life in a way that would capture God's priorities. And uh, both of those have to be held together. They're, they're not in tension. Um, they're sort of two sides of the, of the dual reality. Um, anyway, that's the first thing I want to say. I want to just make that point briefly <clears throat> and then take some time to draw out, um, how it is that the Bible is a library. The Bible is a library, it is a collection of humanly produced texts, and they are of different types. They are different types. And, and it, it's sort of a, um, I mean, the, the there were collections of biblical texts in kind of book form as early as the, you know, the uh, third and or the fourth and fifth centuries uh, are the the oldest surviving ones. Uh, Steve and I are going to be in London in May. Uh, we'll probably hit the 
British Museum and the British Library. Uh, there, there are a couple of these texts in the British Library. Can't remember which ones exactly that they are. Um, Sinaiticus and one other one. I can't remember. I haven't thought about this for a while. Um, but there have been collections of texts for, for a long time. But it, it's the case that in many ways, having a Bible um, can sort of, well, actually, there are a number of ways in which having Bibles prevents us from reading biblical texts well. That's why I've said over the course of this podcast, the way that I, st- I have not picked up a Bible in, in years, when I study biblical texts, I will um, produce my own. I'll take a translation uh, off of like a software program or off an online site put it in a word document get rid of all the headings and all the distractions and make it just one constant flow and um i'll even update that uh that english translation with my own consultation of the of the greek text but i like to sort of have have uh freestanding texts because when you have a bible there are a number of ways that that warps our understanding of what we actually hold in our hands it's easy to assume that because we're holding one book, um, all of these texts that are in it are just equivalent. It's just one book. This is the Bible. <clears throat> and I'm just flipping through pages and I'm attending to what God says here and over here and over here. And then there's this part and there's this part of the Bible. Um, that's an illusion. And that's that's not, that, that really masks or it hides so much from view. Um, these are just varied kinds of texts. We have legal literature that has to be understood in terms of the conventions of ancient legal literature. We have historical works in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, and those have to be understood in terms of how um, ancient Near Eastern historical works were produced and what they meant and how they would mean. And then um, the Gospels and Acts have to be understood in terms of um, what did Greek, what did, what did, uh, narrative literature look like in, in the Greco-Roman world? What are those conventions? And why did people produce, you know, quote unquote, historical texts in those contexts? Um, because the way that certain texts mean will be different than the way other texts mean. So the Psalms mean, they have their meaning, they, they get their meaning across or they express meaning in ways that are very different from legal texts. And the Psalms are very different from how New Testament letters express their meaning. And so they have to be read and assessed very, very differently. Um, it's really unfortunate when we we might think um, that what we can do is sort of turn the pages of the Bible this way a little bit and read a couple of statements about God and then kind of flip over here. Oh, that's kind of like what it says over here. Um, look at this statement about God. And all we're doing is turning to different parts of a book. But when we do that, um, we're just picking up very different kinds of literature that can be um, that can sort of seem contradictory if we don't recognize that the kinds of literature are very different. Here's just here's one example. When I was in uh, must have been my goodness, I don't know fifth grade or something like that. Um, I wrote. My whole life, I've loved baseball. And I wrote a poem about baseball. This was for a class. We had to write a poem uh, about our favorite subject or whatever. So, of course, you know, mine, baseball. And uh, my mom printed it up and 
framed it. She was so proud of this poem that I wrote. And you know what? For like, it must have been like 11 or 12. It's so good. Proud of that poem. The allusions and the references and the rhyme and the meter. Anyway, um, I've not written. Let's see, yeah, I've not written any other kinds of literature about baseball, but I've certainly talked about it enough on this podcast. You know how passionate I am about the sport. Um, but that's one kind of text that I've produced about baseball. If you if you read that poem, you might think, "Doggone it, this kid loves baseball." Um, when my, when my boys were growing up, um, I can't remember. It was, it was about six straight years. I coached my youngest son, Riley's baseball teams. Riley played baseball. I can't say that he loved it like I did, but he played it, tolerated it, um, dropped out after, after some years, but, uh, he and I would go to ball games. We'd go to minor league baseball games. We'd go to, you know, when we lived in Ohio, we'd go to Reds games every time the Cubs came to town and Riley knew all about my love for baseball. Um, and I was thinking about, think about these two, these, these several kinds of communication. I would, uh, on one hand, my communication with Riley. And then what I'm about to say in a second, my communication with Jake, think of those as sort of texts. On one hand, Riley knew all about my love for baseball. I would would sit there in games. I would explain to him the rules and different strategies for different situations. I mean, it just, I would get lost in the wonder of all that. I loved it. Um, Jake, uh, who's about two and a half years older than Riley, never wanted to have anything to do with organized sports. Uh, Jake surfs now. He always was a skater growing up. He just took to skateboarding when he was about uh, eight years old and just, he still, uh, he's 26. He still skates all the time and, uh, surfs and snowboards. Well, I remember just this one day. Um, so growing up, Jake didn't want to have anything to do with organized sports, but he wanted me to take him and his buddy, Jed to the skate park all the time, which I did. I would take the boys to the skate park, you know, park for two hours. I would, sit in the car and grade papers or I would read or whatever. Uh, sometimes I'd go over and take pictures of those guys and um, whatever. That's just what we did. One day, um, Jake asked me, and I'll sort of fictionalize it a little bit just for the purposes of this. This is an illustration of something. This is going somewhere, if you could believe it. Uh, one day, Jake said to me, I can't believe this. He, he was like 11 years old. And it was such an interesting question and i'm so glad i was like dialed in for like once in my life as a parent uh he goes dad do you do you support it's funny that this is exactly how he said it he goes do you support me being a skater i was like what do you mean buddy like pausing for a moment to kind of gather my thoughts and like make sure i handle this moment well because it was a real it was a real sensitive moment i said what do you mean jake do you mean I know that you have no interest in baseball or golf or football. Um, but I know that you have interest in, you know, you love guitar, skater. Am I cool with that? And do I support you? He goes, yeah. And I took the time. I mean, what I said next, I'm so proud. I'm so glad I was with it. But imagine Riley overhearing my conversation with Jake. Say Riley's in the bathroom outside of, they had a bathroom outside their bedroom getting ready for bed. 
imagine that Riley overhears what I say to Jake. Because I said to him, I was like, Jake, I love that you're a skater. I love the, the day that you learn to drop in on a half pipe. When you do, you know, I named a bunch of tricks that I knew at the time. I'm like, I can't, you, you amaze me, Jake. I, I have no capacity to do this kind of stuff. And it's like, when I, I just love watching you and I see how much fun you have. And I'm just, I'm just so proud to be your dad. Like you could, all the stuff that you can do. It's incredible, you know? Um, and I didn't say this, but what if I went on to say, and Jake, who cares about baseball? It's just like, it's just a game. It's, it's no big deal. I don't, you know, it's who cares, whatever. It's just a game, whatever. Imagine if Riley overheard what I'd said. For him, there would have been like sort of like a contradiction. Wait a minute. Dad, you love baseball. You wrote this poem about baseball. You tell me all about strategy when we go to, uh, you know, Dayton Dragons games and Cincinnati Reds games. Um, you always, you know, you, you love going there and, you know, getting a drink and a hot dog and a bag of peanuts. This is what you actually love. How could you say you don't love it? What I'm driving at is this. In, in a sense, I've just laid out three different texts. A poem from when I was a kid expressed my love for baseball. The text that is my communication with Riley over time <clears throat> and how much I get into baseball and love the strategy and all that kind of stuff. And then a third text in which I've told Jake, who cares about baseball, it's just a game. Now, are there contradictions there? I don't think so. Because each of those texts mean something different. They mean in different ways. They express their meaning and their significance in different ways. The poem I wrote when I was a kid expresses my love for the game. My excitement that I share together with Riley when I uh, take him to games or when I coached his teams, that's, that's my delight in the game with Riley, which was such a wonderful thing. I totally enjoyed it. And when I spoke to that text to Jake, what I was expressing to him is my relative love for Jake over this game of baseball, which I also love, but that Jake means the world to me. And the, and the way that came across was who cares about baseball? It's just a game. Um, but if you, if you read that in just black and white text and read my communication with Riley in black and white text and read that poem in black and white text and held them all next to each other, you might think, well, there's, these are different authors because these are in contradiction to one another. Anyway, that's a long-winded way of saying there are just different kinds of texts that we find in the Bible, and they all mean in different ways. <clears throat> um, so, for example, uh, we've got wisdom literature in the Old Testament, and you've got uh Psalms are considered wisdom literature, even though it's it's basically it's it's more poetic. Um, but you've got Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, uh, I've got the Song of Solomon. <clears throat> what am I leaving out? Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. Job. Sorry. Oh my goodness, I'm total blank there. You've got Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job, which are considered wisdom texts. <clears throat> and what's interesting about those is that they sort they, they each as as a body of literature they express meaning in ways that are unique to those texts and what's also interesting is that they express meaning in ways that are distinct from each other 
there's a sense in which Proverbs, Job, and Ecclesiastes are all in conversation with each other. Proverbs offers um, just sort of like uh, fragmented sayings that are just general observations about life. Um, and a lot of it's just kind of like cause and effect. So um, in Proverbs, you work hard, you end up having a good life. Um, do you work diligently? You get paid and you can, you can experience periods of comfort and leisure. Um, read the signs of the times, plan in advance, and you're not going to go hungry in winter. If you're lazy, you can end up going hungry. The poor person is typically poor because they don't work hard. These are just sort of generalized statements, generalized observations about life. And they're not absolute. <clears throat> they're, they're just sort of the rules for how life works. Ecclesiastes is quite different. Um, Ecclesiastes basically just says, well, uh, all that stuff going on there in Proverbs, um, guy could work hard his whole life, saves up for retirement. Um, some thief comes along and just steals it. Guy gets screwed. That's kind of how life goes. It's like, wait a minute. Over here, Proverbs said, here's how life should go. Yeah, well, just it doesn't always. And Ecclesiastes is providing just a different perspective, quite cynical, about the character of life. It's just like, there are these generalized rules, but they don't always work out that way. And then uh, sorry, Job sort of provides yet another perspective uh, on the character of, um, of suffering and of, of how everything is supposed to work out. Because Job is somebody that basically followed all the rules of Proverbs and everything just flies apart. And he's, he's totally in pain and it's like in, insane suffering. And Job is a wisdom text. Uh, I don't understand it as a historical, it's a, it's a, it's a wisdom tale. And, um, and then actually Job, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes are all in conversation with each other. And in Job itself, there is a conversation. And uh, my friend Samir has a, a paper coming out in, the, I think, the Harvard Theological Review on this, on how Job uh, is not a theodicy. It doesn't, like, defend God in the face of suffering. I mean, it, it's so much different than sort of everything I was taught and how I inherited it. Um, it's basically a collection of conversations, a series of conversations, in a bunch of people trying to grapple with how, how to deal with life when it just makes no sense. And there are just a variety of answers. <clears throat> but there again, um, Job is a person who basically did everything. He did everything he should have done according to the wisdom of Proverbs. And it didn't, it worked out. It all blew up in his face. So what do you do about that? Um, but just to say the statements about God in Proverbs have to be understood in terms of the kind of literature that it is. And the statements about um, life in service to God or life under the kingship of God have to be understood in that light. These are generalized observations about life. So people, uh, people who are poor, uh, very well may be poor because there are systemic uh, and unjust realities that they're inhabiting. They may have gotten a raw deal or they may be, um, there may be somebody crooked in town that's just taking advantage of them. It's not the case that if you work hard, 
you know, you can enjoy the fruits of your labor. Well, not everybody. People can just be, you know, wearing themselves out and they can just never get ahead. Um, so those texts have to be understood very carefully in terms of the, uh, the kinds of literature that they are. Um, and that's what I want to talk about. I, oh my goodness. I always imagine the thing that I want to talk about is just going to take like 10 minutes. Uh, and this will be a quick episode. I need to understand at some point and come to grips with the reality that I am long-winded. Um, well, anyway, this episode is going to run out in about a couple of minutes. I, uh, I'm going to leave it there. I'll get back to this, but the big point I wanted to make, and I'll draw this out in, uh, further episodes. The big point that I wanted to make is that we have to come to grips with the kinds of literature that are in the Bible. Um, because they mean and express their meaning in different ways. Um, and if we don't recognize that, we're going to, well, we're going to get off track. Well, all this food talk early in this episode has got me hungry. And I think I'm going to be uh, heading out for maybe a walk down the road, grab some street tacos and a beer. And so it has been and is going to be a beautiful day. Don't let it get away.